So when we began this series a few weeks ago, we started with the question that Jesus asked of his disciples. Remember what that question was? Who do you say that I am? Right? And I made a suggestion that John's gospel was written to answer that question. And more specifically, the miracles that John records were intended to give specific answer to that question. We talked about how in the Gospels there are some 35 recorded miracles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John records only seven, and five of those seven, including the one we'll look at today, are unique to his Gospel. So I think that what, what that tells us, and what it tells me, is that it's as if John is hand-picking specific miracles that tell a specific story that ultimately answers the question that Jesus asked when he said, who do you say that I am? Now, let's just do a quick review and consider what we've done thus far and how that question has been answered in the miracles we've seen. We began with the wedding of Cana and we saw that Jesus created something. And not just created something, but what he created new far exceeded that which which previously previously existed. Right? He's a creator. We see that in that that miracle. And the next one was the royal official's son. In this one we see God's omniscience and omnipresence. He, He knew of this son's condition. He knew that he would be healed. But most importantly, he knew of the royal official's heart and what inhibited him from believing. And he exposed that part of his heart so that ultimately that man and all his household believed. We went from there to the pool of Bethesda. And we see there the the merciful hand of God who was there to heal the one most likely, most unlikely to ever be healed. Remember? It was the stirring of the waters. I think I'm on. It was the stirring of the waters. And... uh, And so Jesus goes to that man who was most unlikely uh, to be healed. shows his mercy. And we saw within that miracle that Jesus healed a man even in the absence of his own faith. As far as I can tell in Scripture, he never believed. From there, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. From that miracle, we see that God is the sustainer. That Jesus gives us a supply that is over and beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. And then we saw him walking on the water and that ever-presence, all-knowing Jesus who brings peace in the midst of a storm. So what does John say about who Jesus is from the miracles that he records? Let me suggest this. That Jesus is the all-knowing, all-powerful Creator God whose mercies are new every morning, whose compassion never fails and whose ever-present love is the way of salvation and the source of all peace. John is writing and choosing miracles that, that we might believe, as he says at the end of his Gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is, is God incarnate, and He has come to seek and save the lost. And as John says, by believing, you may have life, In his name. See, John was convinced. He was convinced of who Jesus was. The question is, what about you? What about me? But beyond our answer, 
Does our life validate what we say? Can we see evidence in how we live that would support how we would answer that question? If you follow what we've looked at so far, you see that that John is convinced of who Jesus is and the miracles he's choosing is intended to portray to us that conviction that he has in his heart. But all around him are, are people who are trying to answer that question for themselves, right? They're seeking to understand who this Jesus is. And there's some great division going on and it's increasing as time goes on. The wedding of Cana, we know that Jesus' disciples believed, okay? And then we, we go on to the royal official son. As I already mentioned, he and his household believe. When we get to the pool of Bethesda, you'll remember that the Jews were upset because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And the Scripture tells us that they wanted to see him killed. They were seeking his life. Not only because of what he had done to break their Sabbath laws, but because he was making himself out to be equal with God. And then we get to the walking on the water. When his disciples confessed, you truly are the Son of God. And then do you remember what they did in response? They worshipped him. See, there's this growing division as these opinions are being made about who Jesus is. John is convinced about who Jesus is, and that's what he wants us to understand. But all these people are trying to answer that question for themselves. If you will, turn to John chapter 7, verse 40. John chapter 7, verse 40. You see, with each of the successive miracles and the dialogue that follows, we see this divide between the people. And here we get a picture of what that looks like. Verse 40. It says, Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a, a division in the multitude because of him. Do you get the picture? There's all this dialogue and discussion because they're seeing these miracles and they're going, who is this guy? What's this all about? And there's all these opinions. And normally within this context, they would go to the religious leaders. They're the ones that are supposed to know. And they say, you tell us, who is this guy? Look at verse 45. The officers, officers therefore, came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees therefore answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But the multitude which does not know the law is accursed. In other words, these people don't know any better. They shouldn't. No wonder they are believing in something. They don't know what we know. But then in verse 50, Nicodemus said to them, he who had come to him before, as we looked at in previous verses, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everyone went his own home. This was not a happy time. That division that existed in the multitudes is now moved into the religious leaders. 
Because they are the ones that are supposed to have the answer. And they're looking and saying, hey, those people are a curse. We're the religious leaders. Nobody among us believes, do they? Nicodemus is the one who speaks up. Why? Because Nicodemus believes. He has come to faith because of that encounter he had with Jesus. And we know that because of the testimony of Scripture. He is the man who takes him down off the cross, places him in the tomb. He was convinced of who Jesus says he was. But that's the, the atmosphere of the vision that exists within the context of this next miracle. See, Jesus is speaking and he's really wanting to clarify that there are really only two options when you come to answer the question of who Jesus is. He says in chapter 8 that, they, that these are our two options. You're either a slave to sin or you're made free by him. He says, you either worship God by worshiping me or you worship Satan by rejecting me. That's what Jesus said. Those are the words that came out of his mouth. And that's why the religious leaders were so upset. Because he was telling them, your father is Satan if you don't believe that God sent me for your good and ultimately your salvation. As we enter the miracle this morning, that is kind of the rising uh, emotion of what's going on here. Jesus is having this dialogue with with these religious leaders and, 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 and they've made the claim, you know, our father is Abraham and, and Jesus tells them, your father is Satan if you don't believe that God sent me and I'm here for your salvation. I, I existed before Abraham. And they said, no, wait, wait. You, we know when you were born and, and we know when Abraham was born. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming, that he was God incarnate. So what did they do? They picked up rocks to stone him, to kill him, because they understood the significance of the claim he was making. And that's the atmosphere with now that this miracle now takes place within. Jesus has been run out of the temple, and yet he still remains in Jerusalem. And he continues to press the question, who do you say that I am? And the perspective of your view determines your answer and ultimately your life validates what you say you believe. And so as we look at this miracle this morning, I want us to put ourselves in the narrative. Let's look at what it, see, what it, what it appears to be through the eyes of those in this passage. Before we do that together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for the chance to look at your word this morning to Uh, Have our eyes opened as you uh, did so graciously to this man born blind. I pray that uh, we would be able to see with eyes of faith what it is that is intended to impact our life, to direct us to you, to help us understand your love and grace towards us. Father, that's our prayer this morning, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would, turn over to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. If you will, begin reading with me in verse, uh, verse 1. And he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of Him who sent me 
As long as it is day, night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made, a, made clay out of spittle and, and applied it to the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which translated means sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seen. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but it's like him. He kept saying, I am the one. Therefore, they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. I want us to look at this from the perspective of three different views in this narrative. The first one is the the view from the perspective of the Pharisees. And I believe we get a glimpse of what that looks like from verses 1 and 2, where he says, when Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? The reason I see that as a view from the Pharisees is because the the idea that they have was ultimately given to them by the Pharisees. The second part's the easiest part. If did this man's parents sin? It's this idea from the Old Testament where you see what the sins of one generation passed on to the next. And that's true in our world today. Very often you see people who are uh, a victim of abuse become abusive. People who grew up in a home of addiction become addicts. The sins of one generation pass down to the next. And so they're wondering, did the parents do something to cause this man to be born blind? The harder part of that, though, is the other part of the question. Was, this, was it this man's sin that he was born blind? Because if you think about that, if it was his sin that caused him to born, be born blind, then the sin happened before he was born. That's where the Pharisees' teaching comes in. Because they taught that, in fact, what happens is in the womb there is an inclination towards good or towards evil. And depending on what choice is made, that baby is born if with a disability because they chose the inclination towards evil. Now, it's important to, to understand that in the context of what the Pharisees believe in full. Sin and righteousness in the minds of the Pharisees was a consequence of the choices that we make as far back as the womb. You make good choices and it ensures you to remain in good standing before God. You make bad choices, you fall under God's judgment. Ultimately, your destiny, your eternal destiny, is determined by your choices. But when this miracle happens, we have a problem. Because we have a man who was born blind. As a consequence, according to the Pharisees, of sin. Whether it's this man or his parents, we don't know, but sin was the cause. And ultimately, this miracle presents a problem. Because the man who has been born blind because of sin is now healed. And the Pharisees knew and in fact taught that this kind of healing was a divine prerogative. In other words, only God 
was capable of changing this man's condition. And they would look back at a verse like Exodus 4.11 that says, To the Lord, the Lord said to them, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Not only did they see that it's a, as a divine prerogative, they believed and taught that it would ultimately be a sign of the Messiah who is to come. Isaiah taught in chapter 29, verse 18, On that day, speaking of the day of the Messiah, the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. See, the Pharisees knew this promise and the implications of this miracle. And that's exactly the reason that they brought him in for further questioning because this is no small event. Look at their questioning in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees him who was formerly blind. Now, it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? There was a division among them. They said, therefore, to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. You see, one of the issues that the Pharisees kept stumbling up against is the fact that Jesus had this propensity to heal on the Sabbath. And that was a problem for them because they had all kinds of rules about what's to take place on the Sabbath. If you think about this miracle alone, Jesus probably violated at least three parts of the the Sabbath law according to the Pharisees. The first was when he took that spittle and and used with mud and made clay. They precisely prohibited such a thing because it was kind of like the act of kneading when you're making bread and therefore prohibited on the Sabbath. Violation number one. The second thing Jesus did is he took that clay and then he anointed the man's eyes. Anointing. Violation of the Sabbath. The third thing he did is he actually healed the man. And according to the Sabbath law, you can't do that unless it's to save the life of another. And that did not apply in this situation. He was just born blind. His life was at stake. Violation number three. You see, that's what bothered the Pharisees so much. They had the rules and Jesus wasn't following them. Jesus gave no regard to their tradition. And so they would ask, how can a man be righteous and not follow our rules? Remember, good choices ensure a good standing before God. This man is healing on the Sabbath. That's not a good choice. He can't be righteous. But notice the division, again, that is taking place. Where they're saying, how could a sinner do such signs? And let me point out the fact that this is a a very important statement that's being made because they're looking specifically at what Jesus did. He healed a man born blind. He's blind because of sin. That's a divine prerogative. It's what the Messiah is going to do. How can anybody just do that? And for sure, a sinner can't do that. This is a big deal in the eyes of those who are watching. 
the Pharisees turn to the man and they essentially ask him, who, who do you say that he is? Now, it's my opinion here that they really don't care. <laughs> because they've already made up their mind what needs to happen with Jesus. They were seeking to kill him, to eliminate him, to remove him from the scene. Really, I think what they were wanting was to find out the pulse of the people. What does everybody else think about who Jesus is? And the answer that they received indicated that the people were seeing Jesus as someone greater than themselves. In other words, their opinion of Jesus was higher than even that of the Pharisees. Because according to what this man said, that Jesus is a spokesman for God. He's a, he's a prophet. And what Jesus was saying contradicted what the religious leaders were teaching. And so there's a problem. And so the best way to discredit someone's testimony is to disrupt their character, right? So that's what they set out to do. Verse 18 says, The Jews therefore did not believe it of him that he had been born blind. In other words, he's making it up. He's lying. He was never born blind. So they go to the parents to make sure that that's in fact the case. And we'll talk about what happens with the parents later on as we look at this account from their view. But suffice it to say, for now, they validate, yes, that is our son. Yes, he was born blind. No, we have no idea how it happened. So the Pharisees go back to the man a second time. Do you get the idea that this is really important to them? This is unlike any other miracle, and you understand now why? It's a divine prerogative. It's a sign of the Messiah. This is important to get to the bottom of this. Look at verse 24. So the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He therefore answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. They said therefore to him, What did he do to you? How did you open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become one of his disciples too, do you? Oh, that made them mad. It says they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to him, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. He's saying, Look, guys, we all know the consequences here. There's only one person who can do this. You know what happened. Explain it to me. They answered and said to him, You were born blind entirely in sins, and you are teaching us? And they put him out. This passage clearly tells us where the heart of the Pharisees are. Perhaps no more clearly than in verse 24 when they say, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, praise the Lord. We know this man is a sinner. Since when does God rejoice at the sight of a sinner? Since when does God take joy in passing judgment for sin? The Pharisees did not recognize Jesus because they didn't know God. That statement in and of itself 
tells you that they did not understand the heart of God. That He came to seek and save that which was lost. That we are born in sin and salvation is only through Christ alone. They obviously didn't get that point. They were unwilling to recognize the reality of the sin in their life. They claimed to be a disciple of Moses. Isn't that interesting? They didn't talk about being a disciple of God. They didn't talk about trusting God. This was Moses, right? And the reason that's significant is because Moses gave them a list. And as long as they follow that list and do what the list says, they're good. Because it's a whole lot easier to follow a list than it is to relate to a person. The list tells us, you're okay. You can do it. The person says, you're not okay. No matter what you do. John 8.34, Jesus says, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. But only if I set you free are you free indeed. See, ultimately, the Pharisees didn't accept the testimony of Jesus because their pride was a barrier to their belief. They didn't see themselves as a slave to sin because the law of their tradition guaranteed them good choices. They had the list. And as long as they followed it, they were in good standing according to their eyes. Good choices, good standing, bad choices, God's judgment. But I think verse 34 ultimately reveals the source of their pride. You were born entirely in sins and you were teaching us. The implication is you're a sinner and you're teaching us. Us who are not born in sin. Us who do not have that issue in our life. Us who follow the law and the traditions. We have nothing to learn from a sinner. Nor the one who has healed you. I really believe, this is just my opinion for what it's worth, that the Pharisees would have followed Jesus if he would have just approved their good behavior. If he would have come up and said, hey, you guys are doing a great job. And and they would have probably said, hey, tell me more. But, But because he confronted their heart, this was a heart issue. They were doing some of the right things, but their heart was far from God. And as Paul tells the Romans, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It begins with the knowledge that your heart has to understand that fundamentally you are a sinner before you will ever see the need for a Savior. Their pride was a barrier to their belief. Because it prevented them from seeing their own sin. But did you notice what an expert they are at identifying everybody else's? Now contrast that with the man who was born blind. Look again at verse 6. He said to them, he said this, he spat on the ground, made a clay out of spittle, applied it to the clay to his eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he went away, he washed and came back seeing went and told all of his neighbors. They were confused about who he was. And, and so he recounts exactly what Jesus told him to do. And, and they asked, well, who was he? Where is he? And, and although he knew who had healed him, he, he didn't know where he was. Remember, he was blind. He, he couldn't see. 
a stranger. He has never seen, has never met, put mud on his face and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, we don't know where they were at the time this encounter took place. We know that Jesus had been cast out from the temple, but he's somewhere still in Jerusalem. And he encounters this man, and he tells him to go to the pool of Siloam. And if you think about a map, the temple is kind of on the northeast side. The pool of Siloam is on the southeast side, kind of in the opposite corner. So you can imagine the humility of this man to kind of parade through town with mud on his eyes trying to get his way to this pool of Siloam. He could have refused. He could have gone to somewhere shorter, some other source of water, washed his eyes and see if that would have worked. But no, he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. But why the pool of Siloam? What's significant about that? Is that important? Well, when it names it, typically it tells us this is important. And here's why it's important. The chapter 8 tells us that this event took place during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And one of the things that we know about the Feast of the Tabernacles is a tradition, a religious ritual, where the priests from the temple area would parade down to get water for their jugs that they would then put in to the big uh, bowl that, that they washed sins away with as they entered into the temple. And so that was something that happened during the Feast of the Tabernacles. Guess where the priests go to get water for their jars? The Pool of Siloam. Jesus sent this man specifically to this place because he knew who would be there. He knew the audience of people because this was like a big parade that followed them down to this pool and then followed them back up to the temple. And it was during this occasion that the man goes down to the pool so that they could all be eyewitnesses of this miracle. You remember the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda? We talked about that. Remember how he really didn't know who had healed him? They asked him, who healed you? And he said, I don't know. I didn't get his name. And then he went on to incriminate Jesus, in fact. When, they, when he found out who, who it was that healed him, he goes back to the Pharisees and says, oh, hey, I know who healed me. It's this guy. Altogether all different in this situation with the blind man. He knew who healed him. And he went immediately to tell everyone what Jesus had done. Even when he was interrogated by the Pharisees. He refused to change his story to avoid their punishment. In fact, he protected Jesus in some sense by by refusing to incriminate him. They were trying to give him an out. They were leading the witness. And he wouldn't do it. And you need to understand, this was not a kind conversation. When it says that they reviled him, they, they cast anathemas at him. They cursed him. And ultimately, they threatened him with what would have been the worst form of punishment known to the Israelites during that day. In verse 22, which we will look at when we talk about the parents, it says, For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him, being Jesus, to be Christ, he should be cast, put out of the synagogue. Okay, let me explain to you that that, we, you and I read right past that. Okay, put out of the synagogue, okay, can't go to the club anymore. Doesn't sound like that big of a deal, does it? It's a huge deal. This is being excommunicated from the nation of Israel. When somebody was put out of the synagogue, in the minds of the Jewish people, they were to be considered dead, ignored, outside the blessing and protection of Israel as God's chosen 
people. Essentially, they were condemned as a pagan and cursed by God. This was no small thing. But even with that hanging over his head, the man Jesus healed refused to turn his back on the one who had healed him. And even when that threat became reality, look at verse 34. And they put him out. He was put out of the synagogue. He was excommunicated. He was considered dead. You see, this man can see, but his condition is really now worse off than it was than when he was blind. But doesn't that tell you something about his heart? Humble obedience, faithful commitment, unwilling to condemn the innocent even in the face of persecution. And then he meets Jesus face to face for the first time. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that, he had, that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, And who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Paul has a statement in his letter to the Ephesians as he prays for them. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I believe that's exactly what happened in this encounter. The eyes of his heart were enlightened. And I want you to think about the timing of this encounter, right? See, Jesus could have revealed himself almost immediately after the miracle when all the emotions were high. And boy, wouldn't it be easy to believe then, right? Everything was good. But this man had just endured some serious persecution. He had been condemned as a sinner and put out of the synagogue. He's right in the middle of persecution. He was in the midst of something that that was hard for him to endure where his commitment had already cost him something. And now, to profess faith in Jesus, that would cost even more. It tells you that he knew where his heart was. And he knew that he needed a Savior. This man had been told since the day he was born, you are a sinner. And now he was face to face with a man who said he was God and extending forgiveness. And he believed. When the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Now, as a promise, I want to go back to the parents' perspective and see what it looks like from their eyes. Look at uh, verse 18. The Jews therefore did not believe it of him, that he had been born blind and he received sight, until they called the parents of the one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who says he was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered him and said, We know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but now, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He's able to speak for himself. What a contrast to their son. They said that they didn't know. I think that's a bold-faced lie. He went back to the neighborhood. He told all the friends and neighbors. They knew that he, they just told him that, that it is our son and now he now sees. Don't you believe? 
that they had to have understood what this boy told everybody else that they would in fact have told his parents. It was Jesus. This is what he did. And this is what happened. But they said, look, all we know is that this is our son, that he was born blind, but we don't know anything else. See, the man was willing to defend the character of a stranger. They were unwilling to take a risk for their own son. See, they were protecting themselves. The, the text tells us that the reason they gave the answer they did is because they knew that those who aligned themselves with Jesus would be put out of the synagogue. They feared that punishment. And so they were unwilling to tell them what I believe they knew because their son had made that known. And not only that, they threw their son under the bus. He's of age. Go ask him. I don't think the parents are all that different than the Pharisees because they considered their own life dear to them. They wanted to protect themselves. We remember the words that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, when he says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when it comes to his glory. And the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Simply put, the parents were unwilling to associate themselves with Jesus because the cost was too high in their mind. Life was pretty comfortable. It was working out well. And following Jesus would only complicate things. It was a sign of self-protection, a sin of self-protection that prevented them from seeing Jesus for who He really was. They were unwilling to let Jesus interrupt their life. So they kept a, a safe distance from Him, which was ultimately lethal to their soul. Those are three perspectives. Three very different perspectives. And so as we think about the passage this morning, I want you to consider how you view Jesus. Do one of those perspectives represent where your heart is? Is pride your obstacle to belief? And if you quickly answered no, your answer is yes. Because it's really not a matter of whether you have pride. It's just how you manage it before the Lord. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, Pride is a perpetual nagging temptation. Keep on knocking it on the head, but don't be too worried about it. As long as one knows one is proud, one is safe from the worst form of pride. That worst form of pride is when we become blinded by the importance of self at the expense of our dependence upon God. That's what we see in the Pharisees. We see in this man's parents. We don't have to reject God openly, okay? They did it out of silence. We see that in our own lives when we carry on with life, pursuing career, pursuing family, maybe pursuing the, the good of society, but only acknowledging God when it's of some benefit to me. So you tell me. Is that really the relationship that we want to have or that God desires to have with us so that 
the majority of our interactions are, are consumed with what's in it for me. See, the parents were not all that different in their self-protection. Because really, that's just another face of pride. It's this attitude that says, I've got this. I'm good. I've got this. My life is comfortable. Generally working pretty well. But if Jesus gets too involved, (laughs) this is going to complicate things. It's the desire to keep a safe distance so that I can control how far I'm willing to go. Instead, I think we need to look at the blind man. I think it's his example that we should all seek to follow. His life was marked with a humble obedience. He didn't ask Jesus to explain. Jesus gave him some strange instructions, put mud on his eyes, told him to pray through town, go to this specific place. You notice the man didn't say a word. He did exactly what Jesus told him to do. He didn't modify his response. He didn't compromise to avoid persecution. His obedience was motivated by by his gratitude. Remember his answer? All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's your story. Didn't we just sing it, right? I once was lost, but but now I found was what? Blind, but now I see. So is your life marked by a humble obedience? Or have you taken the miracle of your salvation for granted? It's equally as magnificent. One way to answer that question is by considering the boldness of your testimony. (laughs) Because what did this man do after he had been healed by Jesus? What did he do? He went and told everybody. He went back to his neighborhood. He told his friends. I believe he told his family. I believe he told everyone, including those who were persecuting him. He didn't embellish the story. He didn't add any theatrics. He simply recounted what Jesus did and then testified of that transformation in his life. See, if we understand the magnitude of our miracle, our response should be the same. This is what Jesus did. And here's the difference it made in my life. I was blind, but now I see. But don't miss the most important attribute of all. When Jesus revealed himself to this man, says that he believed and then what? Look at verse 38. What did he do? He worshipped him. He worshipped him. I think this is the the heart of the issue. His worship was the evidence of his faith. And the same is true for you and I. To the point that if we are struggling to follow God's will, we don't have an obedience problem. We have a worship problem. If we are struggling to, to share our testimony, we don't have a witness problem. We have a worship problem. Worship is not just the songs we sing. It's the life that we live. A life that exalts God as Savior, as Redeemer, as our Creator who made things new. The One who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. 
He is the Son of God who reconciled all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. He rose from the grave, conquered death, so that He alone, the Scripture tells us, might have first place in everything. That is a definition of worship. First place in everything. Worship should be our ultimate goal and the central theme of our life. I believe it's from the heart of worship that all other Christian attributes ultimately flow. So let me encourage you this week to focus on having a heart of worship. That includes a heart of worship as you go before the Lord and pray. As you recognize your dependence upon Him, you glorify His holy name. You trust in His faithful provision. You believe that His compassions never fail, that His mercies are new every morning. You worship Him in your prayers. You worship Him when you go spend time in His Word because in that act, what you're saying is, I can't do this without you. Show me the way. Let your Word be the light of the lamp at my feet. Direct my paths so that I may follow you faithfully. It's your heart of worship as you sing. And that just doesn't have to be on Sunday morning. Sing in your car. Sing when you mow the lawn. Sing wherever you are about God's goodness and grace towards you. You were blind, but now you see. That's worth singing about. And worship in your fellowship. Worship in how you interact with one another. They will know you are my disciples because of what? Your love for one another. It's your heart of worship. Gratitude for what God has done that you then extend to those around you. It's a heart of worship. So what are you going to focus on this week? Having a heart of what? Worship. Consider that as your takeaway today. Let me pray for our time. Father, thank You for the beauty of Your Word. How You make it come alive because of the life that is within it. And as John has so... uh, eloquently provided this story of your miracle and the significance. He's not going to let us miss this fact. This was very important. Even the Pharisees understood the importance of what was happening here. May we come as this man did, recognizing our sin in the sight of our Savior and bowing before Him in worship because of our faith and trust in Him. His sacrifice on the cross. His resurrection from the dead. All the works that He did that we could not have done for ourselves. Salvation is in Him alone. Father, help us to live a life this week that is a life of worship that reflects the gratitude of our salvation. The greatest miracle of all. Thank you, Father, for the time that we've had together this morning. We pray this in Your name. Amen.